All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. We're dispensing with the opening music today, partially because I'm just not feeling in a very musical mood, and also because um, by dispensing with the usual opening music, it actually uh, ties into one of the points which I am going to be trying to make in this particular podcast about the uh, nature of the dystopian situation at this particular moment. So I'm uh, actually ranting on the afternoon of Saturday, October 27th. So as you can imagine, I'm all freaked out, like everybody is all freaked out, by the massacre which we just witnessed in Pittsburgh, where a uh, gunman opened fire on a synagogue in the Pittsburgh Jewish community. Seems to have left a, uh, a minimum of 11 dead, and rather absurdly, I just heard a, uh, a police spokesperson, Pittsburgh police spokesperson on the radio, saying that the gunman's motive is unknown, which is a patent absurdity. Media accounts have already noted all of his Jew-hating rants on social media, the uh, perpetrator, that is, guy by the name of Robert Bowers, as he has been identified Less than an hour before the shooting, he posted online something referencing HIAS, which is the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, a um, nonprofit which describes itself as helping refugees rebuild their lives in safety and sanity. I have personal friends, by the way, uh, <clears throat> refugees from the former Yugoslavia, who um, HIAS helped to settle in this country. Less than an hour before the shooting, Bowers posted online, quote, Hayas likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics, I'm going in. End quote. As he opened fire, he actually shouted, All Jews must die. And police are actually still saying that the motive is unknown. There's nothing unknown about the motive at this point, sorry. And uh, interestingly, this uh, Bowers character in his social media posts before the massacre, portrayed himself as too extremist for Trump, but tellingly in completely Trumpian terms, calling Trump a globalist, quote, unquote, and said that Trump is not winning, quote, unquote. And these are, of course, two words that, you know, Trump is always using. He's always talking about, you know, how America has too long been dominated by the globalist, which is a code word for Jews, as is well known. And, uh, you know, he's always talking about how we're going to make America win again and you know, people should vote for him because he's a winner, blah, blah, blah. So obviously this guy, even if he's now portraying himself as too extremist, even for Trump, he is obviously a part of this wave of hatred, which has been unleashed by Trump. And it really makes me rather sick that now Trump, you know, has just released some statement full of crocodile tears about how he was shocked by an anti-Semitic act, quote unquote. But what makes me even more perturbed is that media commentators are letting him get away with this completely bogus and transparent condemnation. You don't get to use anti-Semitic dog whistle propaganda as Trump has, and then openly greenlight Nazi attacks, as Trump has, and then say you are shocked by an anti-Semitic act. 
No journalist or commentator reporting about this should fail to point this out. Now, way back in 2016, when Trump was still on the campaign trail, I was pointing out repeatedly that he had adopted a fascist posture and program and that his victory could mean a fascist takeover of this country. And certainly, the actual fascists out there, even with his mere, you know, um, campaigning and election, took that as a green light. With his open glorification of violence and open scapegoating and demonization of immigrants. And there was immediately after his election, going all the way back to almost exactly two years ago now, in November of 2016, Immediately in the days following his election, there was a, um, a wave of hateful Nazi and often anti-Semitic graffiti and attacks, which was reported from across the country directly in response to his election. To point out just but one example, which um, didn't even get national attention, I only happened to know about it because I was chatting online with a friend on Facebook who's up in Massachusetts who alerted me to the fact that in the town of East Hampton, there is a a big sort of a rock outcropping that overlooks the town. And the day after Election Day, some people went up there and spray painted on the outcropping in big letters that were visible from town the following words. Fuck Black Lives Matter. Build the wall, gas the Jews, and Trump. And at this time, immediately, um, you know, in the days following Trump's election back in November of 2016, I produced a, a vlog, a video rant, in which I stated, in no uncertain terms, without pulling any punches, that Donald Trump is a fascist. And I went down the... Um, the list of the basic essential ingredients for what constitutes fascism, drawing from Trump's own words on the campaign trail and in the final television spot of his campaign. Let's go back and give it a listen. Fascism is not always a very easy thing to define, but there are certain essential ingredients that I think that we can all agree on. And I've assembled a little list. Why don't we go down the little list and um, check to see if they are all displayed in the Trump phenomenon that we have witnessed over the course of the past year. One, ugly ultranationalism that seeks to correct perceived humiliation. Our roads and bridges are falling apart. Our airports are third world condition, and 43 million Americans are in food stamps. After 15 years of wars in the Middle East, after trillions of dollars spent and thousands of lives lost, the situation is worse than it has ever been before. Xenophobia and demonization of the other. And these are the best and the finest. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. 
They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. And it only makes common sense. It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America, and it's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. Exaltation of the great leader. Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why I alone can fix it. Fetishization of violence. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Contempt for democracy. Now we should just cancel the election and just give it to Trump, right? What are we even having it for? What are we having it for? Enthusiasm for military aggression. I would bomb the shit out of them. I would just bomb those suckers. And that's right. I'd blow up the pipes. I'd blow up the refi. I'd blow up every single inch. There would be nothing left. And you know what? Populism tinged with anti-Semitism. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. The political establishment that is trying to stop us. And rank anti-intellectualism. And Trump returns the respect by recognizing regular hardworking Americans are a lot smarter than any of the ideological eunuchs in all of their pontificating glory. It's true. The people, my people are so smart. And so check, they're all there. We are on the brink of a fascist takeover in the United States of America. Deal with it. So I don't want to hear any more of this um, equivocation. It has been clear from the very beginning from even before his election, when he was on the campaign trail in 2016, that the Trump phenomenon is a fascist phenomenon. And one thing I'm going to particularly point out is that, uh, well, since this is a podcast rather than a vlog, you couldn't actually see the images that went along with that television spot. But at precisely the point where he invokes, quote-unquote, global special interests. And we understand that this word global in its various, um, you know, um, iterations and variants over the, over the generations, including back in the, uh, the classical fascist era, quote unquote, rootless cosmopolitans, similarly a code word or just, you know, an outright label for Jews. He invoked this phrase, global special interests, while the video spot was displaying an image of George Soros, demonized as the, uh, you know, the Jewish puppet master in classic terms, going all the way back to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, who, by the way, was just a recipient of a mail bomb in that wave of um, attempted pipe bomb attacks that we just witnessed in the immediate prelude to the Pittsburgh massacre. Now, since then, 
things have only become more obvious after the uh, neo-Nazi hate fest, which we witnessed in Charlottesville, Virginia last year, which actually saw deadly violence when an anti-fascist protester was actually killed when one of the Nazis charged, or alt-rightists, as uh, the common euphemism goes, charged his car into, um, into the crowd of counter-protesters. Trump notoriously condemned the violence on both sides and said you had very fine people on both sides, quote-unquote, as if the literally murderous neo-Nazis who the day before the march in their uh, preliminary night march with torches through Charlottesville were chanting, Jews will not replace us, included very fine people, quote unquote, to further dog whistles to his anti-Semitic base, such as on the, uh, the White House statement on um, Holocaust Day last year, where, you know, it was de rigueur that they had to issue some kind of a rote statement, but the statement did not actually mention the word Jews. And, uh, you know, this um, subtle or not so subtle, not only playing to, but cultivation of an actual Nazi base continues right on up to just a couple of days ago when in the, uh, the aftermath of, um, of these pipe bombs that were sent through the mail, by an avid Trump supporter, by this perp who had, uh, you know, Trump propaganda plastered all over his vehicle. Not very bright for somebody who's trying to do something deeply illegal and undercover. Trump tweeted that um, the quote-unquote bomb stuff, and he actually used the quotes. I'm not just quoting him. I mean, if I was quoting him, I would have to say, quote, quote, bomb stuff, unquote, unquote. He actually put scare quotes around the term bomb stuff as intending to hurt the Republicans in the upcoming midterm elections. Now that, again, that's like, you know, a clear, you know, uh, implicit invocation of the so-called, you know, false flag theory, which has been bandied about openly by the likes of um, Ann Kutler and, you know, the rest of Trump's cheerleaders on the, on the far right, which has now become mainstreamed. You know, the notion that, um, that you know, these, these letter bombs are actually sent in some kind of, you know, deep cover stratagem by the Democrats or the deep state or the Illuminati or whoever to try to hurt Trump. So I don't want to hear any equivocation about Trump's responsibility in what just happened in Pittsburgh. And I don't want to hear any bogus equivalism about, uh, you know, the lack of civility on both sides. You know, calling for... Um, Politicians who are responsible for the establishment of a nascent concentration camp system in this country. And that is what we are looking at with the detention centers that have been established for intercepted migrants and asylum seekers along the southwest border. Children being separated from their parents, sometimes permanently. Children essentially being orphaned children being lost in the system, in the bureaucracy, we are looking at the establishment of a nascent concentration camp system in this country and calling for the people who are responsible for this, the Secretary of Homeland Security and so on, to be confronted at restaurants and verbally harassed is by no stretch of the imagination equivalent with any of the serial deadly violence which has been unleashed 
against the anti-fascist forces in this country, and most recently by a bunch of Jews who are minding their own business in their house of worship in Pittsburgh. I don't want to hear any bogus equivalency about this. Confronting the responsible bureaucrats and politicians in restaurants is the least we can do. And I want to make clear, not only for tactical reasons, because I'm sure that even if nobody else is listening to this, the FBI is. <laughs> but not only for tactical reasons, but also for ethical reasons, because I believe it. I'm not advocating violence. I want to be explicitly clear about that. But I am advocating unswerving, intransigent, militant resistance. Not militant in the sense of armed, but militant in the sense of uncompromising to the ultimate consequences, while still maintaining the moral high ground and only resorting to violence in direct self-defense. I'm going to briefly point out once again <laughs> the rather ironic reality that um, I was personally attacked by an ostensible leftist who actually supports fascist regimes such as that of Bashar Assad when I was standing at the, um, the Syria peace vigil at Union Square here in New York City just a couple of weeks ago where this guy got in my face and took a swing at me. And I stood my ground. I didn't flinch. I looked him right in the eye. But neither did I take his provocation. He tried to provoke me into taking a swing at, at him. And I did not. And I maintained the moral high ground by making him resort to taking a swing at me. So that's what I mean by militant resistance. All right, moving into the, uh, the second part of my rant, which, uh, <clears throat> and the more subtle but long-term and ultimately more insidious problem about the current dystopia, which is compounding my angst. And it has to do with the fact that we um, dispensed with the usual opening music on the podcast tonight. One of the things that I find frustrating about doing this podcast is that um, for the 20 years that I actually produced a radio show on WBAI here in New York City, um, one of the, the aspects of the show I was most enthusiastic about, in addition to the, you know, ranting and the political commentary, was the music, finding some interesting, appropriate, stimulating, didactic music to... Um, open the show with and to, you know, punctuate my points. And uh, when you're doing it on the radio, you don't have to worry about copyright because the radio station pays the royalties at the end of the year. Now that I've been reduced to uh, doing it on the internet, there is no radio station. I've just got a platform, in my case, SoundCloud, which takes no responsibility for paying anybody royalties. So I have to be responsible for the royalties. So whenever I'm going to be uh, using music, I have to make sure that I am in the clear in terms of copyright and that I can uh, use it without any copyright violation, without having, without having to pay anybody royalties. So um, right away, this just makes things a little bit more frustrating. Now, in the you know, larger scheme of things of um, you know, these weighty issues which we're discussing tonight, that's a small point. But it's uh, in some ways a, uh, you know, an exemplary or a paradigmatic point, because um, when I was on WBAI for 20 years, even though I was on after midnight on a weeknight, started out on Mondays, eventually they switched to Tuesdays, 
starting at midnight. I still had thousands of listeners because it's, you know, it's WBAI 99.5 FM right in the middle of the FM dial in New York City. Not only the biggest metropolitan area in the country, but also the most nocturnal one, the city which never sleeps. So, you know, there were plenty of, uh, you know, fellow night owls and, um, you know, cab drivers and so on who were uh, listening to my show every night. I mean, I, you know, I, I am certain that every night I had thousands of listeners. Since, um, you know, I lost my radio show and, um, you know, part of the whole general downsizing and dumbing down of WBAI, which is part and parcel in the general downsizing and dumbing down of media in this country generally, now I'm uh, reduced to doing a podcast and similarly reduced to, you know, blogging and vlogging more and more and trying to squeeze a dime out of the Internet like every other downsized journalist in the country. Now, I have to emphasize here that I was not paid for the work that I did at WBAI. It was a labor of love. I never received a dime. Uh, but uh, similarly, um, a lot of the writing work that I depended on, you know, in the print world and editorial work that I depended on in the print world to um, make ends meet over the years has similarly been, you know, eviscerated by the poorly named digital revolution, which I would actually argue is a digital counter-revolution or a digital devolution. Um, So, you know, this left me having to try to squeeze a dime off of the Internet, like thousands of other downsized writers across the country. And uh, now that I'm, uh, you know, doing a podcast, rather than actually doing a real radio show on WBAI, um, I've gone from having thousands of listeners each broadcast to having scores of listeners each podcast and on the internet you know you have uh, complete freedom to say whatever you want to say to an audience of zero or near zero so uh, a part of the you know dystopia is that i have been reduced to using the internet and social media when i actually consider those very things to be precisely part of the problem I mean, we don't have to uh, elaborate on how Trump's victory and Trump's continuance of, uh, you know, um, creating public opinion through propaganda has been lubricated through the whole um, post-truth atmosphere and the whole phenomenon of fake news. Fake news has been weaponized in two senses, in this extremely just mind-bogglingly cynical strategy which is being used against us, and by us I mean, you know, the greater polity of the United States and the world, where on one hand, Trump and, you know, his echo chamber on the Internet are relentlessly using fake news. I mean, actually just making up pseudo-news. I mean, one could just go on and on and on, you know, with the non-existent uh, riots in Sweden and the Bowling Green Massacre and uh, you know, the, um, the lying about the numbers that attended his inauguration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just making up completely fabricated pseudo news and then actually using the term fake news to attempt to discredit any real, actual news which is unflattering to the administration. I mean, it's just, you know, to use a catchphrase which I have far too uh, many um, occasions to use, Orwell would shit. 
I mean, it's just completely staggering in its cynicism. And it has all been, you know, enabled, not merely abetted, but enabled by the actual nature of the Internet and digital media, where, uh, you know, the seeming free-for-all of online media has created an atmosphere which is ripe for manipulation by, you know, these shadowy entities like Cambridge Analytica and the Internet Research Agency and all, you know, seemingly homespun websites and blogs and Facebook groups are actually masking covert state propaganda, particularly that which was um, instrumented by the Kremlin in a, a successful effort to get Trump into office. So the initially democratizing instinct that, quote-unquote, information wants to be free and everybody could be a journalist, quote-unquote, is actually being perverted into its opposite, the death knell of information freedom and real journalism. Now, you know, I have to make a point here that I'm a proud autodidact. I never went to J school. And I've always been um, proud of the fact that I actually produce good journalism, adhering to every standard of fact-checking and rigor, while having essentially learned how to do it myself, you know, just doing it on the job training, so to speak, learning to do it by actually doing it. You know, there have been some rough patches over the years, without a doubt, but I've been making a living doing it for, um, you know, going on 30 years now, sometimes having to fill the gaps by selling my labor as a copy editor, but basically as a journalist. But, um, you know, it's been a struggle. And uh, so while, you know, initially I sort of shared this ethic of, uh, you know, being an autodidact and proud and information wants to be free and we have to get away from the, uh, you know, elitism and the cult of professionalism, as it were, uh, you know, around corporate media and we have to democratize things. I mean, I used to really go for all of that rhetoric. But what I'm finding now is that... um, what we are witnessing is the abandoning of journalistic standards entirely. And even, I will point out, by so-called legacy media and by, by the industry itself, not only by, uh, you know, fly-by-night, um, uh, you know, uh, blogs and, um, and, and, and partisan propaganda sites, but even by, uh, you know, <laughs> AP, Reuters, New York Times, etc., Uh, You know, there's been a a tremendous dumbing down of even just basic standards of literacy and, you know, basic, you know, uh, fact checking rigor because everybody wants to be first with the story. So obviously there's going to be, you know, there's going to be corner cutting in terms of actually making sure that what you're putting out there is accurate because there's this attitude of, oh, you can always fix it later if some inaccuracies get through. And then on top, you know, compounding all of this, you have actually got the, you know, this, this phenomenon of fake news, which has now turned into a massive industry. I just heard a, um, a media report, it was actually on the, on the BBC, about a website called America's Last Line of Defense, which is run by a guy by the name of Christopher Blair up in Maine, who actually counterintuitively claims to be a liberal, even though what he's actually doing is he's actually putting out all of this, you know, horrific 
fake news, all this horrific pseudo news, which is actually playing to the most base, ugly, conspiratorial, xenophobic instincts of the right wing. And he's doing this in the name of, um, of satire, but it's not always clear. In fact, most of the time, it seems that it is not clear to the people who are sharing his stories that it's intended as satire. There was one story which went, uh, which went viral last year that emerged from his website about how um, the Supreme Court had, had issued a ruling overturning a lower court decision that would have banned the teaching of Sharia law and Islam in um, school classrooms. Completely fictitious. There was no such Supreme Court ruling. And the story got thousands of hits. Many, many thousands of hits. And this guy, Christopher Blair, is actually making money hand over fist from this um, America's Last Line of Defense website. Now, in turn, if I can just, uh, you know, engage in a little bit of uh, shameless self-promotion here for a little bit, you know, I've been maintaining my website, countervortex.org, since the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I've changed the name a few times since then. It's been Counter Vortex for the past oh, five years or so. But um, uh, I, la- I launched the blog in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, so I've been at it a long time now. And I, you know, am absolutely fastidious about making sure that I've got all my ducks in a row in terms of um, factual accuracy. I try my best. Of course, I don't have anybody, anybody proofreading me. And even the best writer needs, um, needs somebody proofreading and copy editing because it's just the nature of the game that you can't catch all of your own errors. So that's a weakness, an inherent weakness of the medium that I have been forced into. But nonetheless, you know, at least it's an issue for me. I make an effort to um, maintain certain basic standards for literacy, which is becoming rarer and rarer and rarer. I mean, the more and more every day, the, uh, you know, ethic prevails of just cut and paste. You know, you get in a story and you just paste it in. You don't bother to read it over. You don't bother to even proofread it, much less to copy edit it, much less to edit it. <laughs> so in addition to factual rigor and, um, and literacy standards, I also make an effort to um, cover stories which I consider to be important, which are not getting enough media attention, particularly uh, the struggles of indigenous peoples and um, land-rooted ethnicities and, um, and peasants uh, in places like Mexico, Colombia, Peru, North Africa, the Philippines, and their struggles for land and freedom and autonomy. Um, you know, stories which are not just, you know, slavishly following the, um, the coattails of what the dreaded MSM, mainstream media, is covering. And um, unlike the last line of defense, which is making gobs and gobs and gobs of obscene moolah, I'm basically not bringing in anything. My websites are um, actually uh, not even making ends meet. Even the, you know, the, the, the money that I have to shell out for hosting and so on, you know, I'm not even making that back. So, um, and I'll just point out that you know, this podcast now, um, we've been asking uh, listeners to support it on Patreon. We have three Patreon supporters, three, bringing in a grand total of $17 per podcast. 
So, uh, you know, the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, in the current atmosphere, which we are all complicit in creating because, you know, we've gone along with it and just, you know, gone along with the um, techno-utopianism, as it were, about how wonderful and democratizing digital technology is. In this new atmosphere, the fascist-enabling crap is rewarded. And the stuff which is actually has standards both for factual accuracy and for literacy, and has actually, you know, got <clears throat> good politics and is actually attempting, for instance, to support indigenous and peasant peoples in their struggles for land and freedom, is punished and ignored and completely overlooked and dismissed. And a final point is that, uh, you know, even in this free-for-all atmosphere, which we thought was going to be so liberating, but has actually turned out to be enabling fascism and enabling disinformation and spurring on a tremendous industry of disinformation, such as never we witnessed before back in, you know, the era of uh, legacy media and so-called corporate media, which, uh, you know, uh, Noam Chomsky and fairness and accuracy and reporting and so on have won so much acclaim for dissing. You know, there's now an actual industry for disinformation, such as never existed back in the age of legacy media. And even, you know, in the the space which has opened up for actual responsible independent voices, such as my own, countervortex.org, to try to, um, to resist and to fight back a little bit against the tsunami of disinformation, and basically, you know, as I say, it's the right to say whatever you want with nobody listening. <laughs> Even that space is now threatened with closure due to the overturning of net neutrality. You know, the big corporate and government clampdown on uh, such information freedom as we've managed to eke out of the Internet is clearly on the horizon. So we've been led down a, uh, a dead end here, folks where everything that we thought was just so cool and bitchin' about digital media is about to be taken away from us. And meanwhile, the old legacy media has been eviscerated by the digital devolution. So what is going to be left? All that's going to be left is the fascist disinformation. (laughs) I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. But... uh, all right, I'm just going to, uh, you know, say a couple of things before I sign off here. Um, one is that, you know, I don't mean to come across like I'm completely self-pitying here because in, in many ways I consider myself to be very, very lucky that I've actually managed just over the course of the past year or so after having gone through a very, very rough patch in my career, I've actually managed to get to the point where uh, once again I am making a modest living as a writer, as a freelance writer, and that is no mean feat in this age. So um, I actually do consider myself to be very lucky. But nonetheless, I find it extremely frustrating that, uh, you know, my real labor of love, which is um, my news and analysis website, Counter Vortex, is not bringing in a thin dime, that my podcast is bringing in uh, $17 every two weeks. And more to the point that, you know, my personal sob story about all of this is just, you know, it, again, it's indicative, it's exemplary, it's paradigmatic of a much deeper dystopia, which ultimately does not only spell the end 
of political freedom and democracy, but it spells the end of truth. Not even truth as a, um, as a phenomenon, but truth as a concept where falsehood and fake news is not merely elevated to an equal footing with actual factual journalism, but it's on a superior footing. So uh, <clears throat> I can really use some cheering up here, folks. So uh, please be in touch. Check out my website at countervortex.org. Leave some feedback. Tell me what you think. And subscribe to this podcast on Patreon, if you will. I'm, ask- I'm asking only $1 per podcast. I think that you can afford $2 a month. <laughs> we only do two podcasts a month. $1 for each one comes to $2 a month. I think most of you can afford that. And, uh, you know, most importantly join the resistance. I am fighting back with every fiber of my being against the absolute hegemony of falsehood, fake news, and fascism. Please join me. Join the resistance. Join the counter vortex. Rant on you next time. No music!